Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! We are back with another episode of the Job Shop Show. Today we are speaking with Tom Gendick, president and owner of Rochester, Michigan-based Metal Might. Rochester is 20 miles outside of Detroit. Metal Might is a full-service machine shop, and Tom is a second-generation owner as well as a third-generation machinist. We will talk about the handing off of a business from one generation to another from the sun perspective, as well as gears and splines, a specialty of theirs, and very tricky parts to machine. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Tom. Thank you, Jay. I'm, I'm happy to be here. What has been keeping you busy lately? Well, lately it's uh, it's been the same uh, it's been the same story for Metal Might. We uh, try to answer our, our customers' uh, tough challenges and uh, come up with a solution that makes them happy, and uh, we're continuing to do that uh, even today. Any particular challenges that customers have thrust upon you lately? Oh, yes, there's plenty uh, plenty to think of. We uh, Our challenges can range from one part uh, that just has never been made before, which is a typical prototype job shop part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metal Might it, it sort of has a niche with five and six access machinery, so you get a lot of parts that have those, those angles and those um, the things that a typical three-axis mill or, or, you know, two-axis lathe can't do. Um, but I think uh, our 50-plus 50, 50 year history has sort of earned us a reputation, and we get the, uh, the phone call after they've tried two or three shops, and, uh, and, and typically the referrals we get are from other machine shops, which is sort of a unique uh, position we're in. Well, that's a great uh, reputation would, to have, for sure. It is, it is, and we, we don't take that lightly. Uh, we, we certainly appreciate, um, you know, the respect the other shops give us. Uh, I was I was talking to a friend and, uh, and fellow business owner, Jason Ray, uh, from Paperless Parts last week, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I said to him I, I had to get going because I was walking into uh, one of our best customers of American Axle and Manufacturing in the Detroit area, and... Um, they had sent out, I didn't realize they'd sent it out to, to multiple or all their suppliers. They'd sent out kind of a cry for help. Uh, they're looking for a backup plan on a production part for the F-150, uh, mm-hmm. which most of us know is the, is the best-selling Ford product right now. Right. And um, 
so they, they, I don't do production at all. I'm not even certified, uh, with the, the ATIF certification you need to make production parts, but I had responded and said, I'd be glad to take a look at it. So I was, I walked into the meeting and, um, and the, the production manager thanked me and said, I'm the only supplier that responded, uh, when they asked everybody for help. And, and I said, Oh, and we sat and listened and, uh, it, it was a very complicated issue. They, they bought a, a, a two very specialized machines to machine this in production. And Ford said to them that they liked the setup, but they wanted them to have a contingency plan, a backup plan. Mm-hmm. And they had none. So they were asking a supplier to look. And so I'm, I'm sitting in the room looking at it and, uh, and they're saying, well, you know, we got to make 400 parts a day or per shift. And they want me to run, you know, three shifts. And so we were looking at the issue at the end of the day, a couple of people asked me, why, why did you respond to this? And I said, well, it sounds like you have a problem and I want to try to help. So we're, uh, we're putting some things together and I'm, I'm submitting them a proposal uh, this week to try to help them out. Could be a fantastic opportunity. You know, that's how we look at it. We, you know, it's, it's not just about, um, making money. I think, um, my, my grandfather always said that that's, uh, that's a byproduct of doing the right things and doing things right. Uh, the byproduct was making money. And so that's how I kind of look at it. Definitely want to get back to the family history and machining, but before we delve into that and to the gears and splines, you had mentioned that you made a purchase with the mindset of that it was an investment, not an expense. And I was really struck by that. As I see your mindset as a growth mindset, a belief in a world of abundance, whereas a expense mindset is more of a belief in scarcity and really being more concerned with failure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, Obviously, I, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I can say I was uh, I was wired a certain way uh, right from the womb, I guess. And uh, so I know my way of thinking. I've been I've been uh, blessed and wise enough to surround myself with people that have uh, the the other point of view. So we try to get a more well-rounded view. So I have plenty of the the people around me who have the uh, ROI calculators out every second and trying to figure mm-hmm. out if if we're going to have enough, you know, work to pay for this machine. But when it came to, uh, new technology in our shop, um, really, you talked about the generational thing. When my father started the shop, uh, metal might 50 years ago, he was doing conventional machining, uh, as everybody in Detroit was a mill lathe and he had a grinder Mm -hmm. and, uh, very quickly he realized, uh, he was a one man, shop in the basement with, you know, five kids running around upstairs with his wife. And, um, he very quickly realized he needed to get some automation. So he was one of the first of all his peers to invest in CNC equipment. And uh, everybody told him he was crazy that there's no way a computer can run a machine and that they'll never, you know, outpace a, a, a person that can, you know, calculate trig and whatever. So he, uh, he became very good friends with the, the importer in Detroit for Morisiki equipment. And uh, at one point we had uh, over 31 Morisiki machines in our shop. Wow. And uh, yeah, in the 1990s, Dr. Mori, the, uh, the owner of Morisiki, he sent his son uh, to Detroit specifically to come to Metal Might. 
to see a machine that we had had that they never got a chance to look at in Japan. And uh, they wanted to see it on the field. So right. we thought that was ironic, but we gave them the royal treatment and showed them, uh, showed them how, the, how great the machine was. So with, I guess, handing that baton off, my, my, my dad saw where, you know, technology was going to bridge gaps. Uh, he was a great machinist himself and, and an engineer from University of Detroit, but he, uh, he knew that the human mind and the human calculations could only go so far. He saw that these, uh, these CNC machines were definitely going to be the future. And so my, my opportunity to work alongside him for 20 plus years, uh, when I first started my career in the late nineties with him, mm-hmm. he, uh, he said, let's buy, let's buy some of these five access machines. And I said, dad, they're, they're two to three times what every other machine on the market costs. And, uh, not many people are buying them and, you know, you nobody can program them. And so, uh, he, you know, did the typical thing as he and I would have a meeting, he went and bought two and, uh, <laughs> we, we figured out, uh, we figured out very quickly that it, it put a, it made a niche for metal Mite that everybody sort of associated us as, as that shop, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we didn't realize they were searching us as a shop that was crazy enough to buy, buy two, five access mills, but, uh, they, uh, they were quickly our busiest machines. We had, uh, we had backlogs on them, um, you know, three and four months long. Hmm. And, uh, so then we, we followed up with some six access, uh, mill turn combos. And, uh, again, we, we've got, uh, got contracts in there with bell helicopter and, uh, and a couple of aerospace companies. And so again, just doing doing product that a conventional shop cannot do. So when you asked me with a 3d printer, why did I do it? Uh, I lost my dad six years ago to, to cancer. And, uh, yeah, thank you. But, uh, you know, following in his footsteps, we, uh, we looked at some of the new technologies and obviously additive manufacturing is the buzzword. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, I had been uh, I had been keenly watching uh, some of the EOS products and 3D systems and uh, all all the uh, the top runners for probably a good 10 15 years, and uh, the the barrier to entry was just too great. I mean, we were talking a million, a million five yeah. per machine. So I just a, a small shop like us could didn't make any sense. And I started getting uh, requests from customers asking, you know, do you know anything about you know additive and it's interesting. Our company's called Metal Mite, but we actually make quite a bit of, of plastic parts. And uh, um, so, so SLS became very interesting to us. Glass-filled nylon uh, SLS is selective laser sintering. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you we, bought, we found a couple shops. You bought a. I'm sorry. You bought a 3D printer for that's producing plastic parts, not metal parts. Well, uh, so the first machine I got is, is a Mark Forged uh, plastic printer. Yes, carbon fiber and mm-hmm. nylon. Okay. Um, and then I waited three months and I bought a steel printer. So oh. I have a, a direct uh, 3D systems uh, DMP, direct metal printing 300. Um, at one time, it was one of the largest uh, that they made. It's a 10-inch by 10-inch by 13-inch uh, cubic volume there. So any steel parts that fit inside that volume, we can print, and we can print them out of uh, stainless steel, tool steel, or titanium. And what density do they come out of the machine? So I don't know the calculations of density. We just had a group of engineers in last week. Uh, 
making a, a, actually I can't, I guess I can't talk about the product. We had to sign an NDA, but their product, uh, the success of it is all based on density. And they actually said the 3d printed product has a more pure density and solid form than any machined product because of the natural flaws in the bars from the mill process. Hmm. So they, they've been doing a lot of this ultrasonic testing and x-rays and looking at the grains and internal. And they said a 3d printed part is as pure as you can get because you're printing one. If, if you picture one grain of sand at a time and one layer at a time, all the way up and you have no, no cavities, no voids and no flaw. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that you asked that. It's uh, it's it's a pure it's a pure product. How does that complement the traditional machining? Where do you use 3D printing? Because I know a lot of shops are looking into it. Some have purchased printers, and the Mark Forge is more of an entry level. But you made the jump to the more expensive 3D systems printer. So again, how do those fit in with your customer base? What are you doing with them? For sure. We, so to be honest, uh, only in our, in our first year of doing it, the, the Mark Forge printer, as you said, I think was, was less than $15,000. And um, I, I'm fortunate enough, one of my guys that uh, works for me actually had the, uh, the, the little uh, Costco or Sam's Club 3D printer at home. And uh, so he's one of these, uh, he brought it in, and within a few weeks, we had several projects going out the door. Um, and, and, and I guess that's where that mentality comes in, where you talk about um, investment uh, mentality. I looked at it as I, I knew there would be a need for it. I knew it would fulfill uh, a purpose, and, but I wasn't sure what it was. I could not calculate how many parts someone would order or how much we charge for this part. Mm-hmm. And so in the first weeks we had the Mark IVs, a customer called, uh, as, as we, you alluded to in the intro, we do a lot of gear and shaft projects, uh, being in the Detroit area. I think there's just a lot of, lot of gear work. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of my customers had made a gearbox, and uh, as, as is typical, they, they prototype it and they propose it for a certain vehicle. And it, it didn't get uh, picked up by that, that customer, so this project sat on the shelf. Now another customer has come five years later, very interested in the gearbox, but as, uh, as chance would have it, the gearbox has to be mounted on the opposite side of the, the area that uh, the, the transfer case where it would be going. Mm-hmm. So by default, the original design allowed oil uh, to be fed by gravity down on top of the gears. By moving this to the other side because of how it fits in the vehicle, there's no oil getting on the gears. Um, and so anyone who knows anything about gears, that's typically a bad thing. If you're running metal on metal with no <laughs> lubricant. Right. So they called me in a panic. They had, they had sold one of these test units to a customer. The customer was getting ready to mount it on a vehicle and run a test. And they said, Oh my gosh, the, the oil goes by gravity to the wrong side. It's not going to get any oil on these gears. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's the solution? And they said, we need, and they designed sort of a, a, works like a sprinkler. It's a plate with some holes in it. They wanted to mount it to the front of the gear. And as the, as the oil touched that surface, it would just get slung. It's called a slinger. 
would, mm-hmm. would sling the oil to the outskirts of the gear. So they designed it, and they said, how long would it take to machine this? Well, the, the part seemed simple enough, but it actually had some five-axis holes where the oil came internally through the shaft and then shot out. And I said, guys, we're, we're, looking, at, we're looking at three weeks before my machine opens up to do that. And they said, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose this ginormous sale. And I said, well, if I can throw it out there, um, I can print this for you and have it tomorrow. I can hand it to you on your way into work tomorrow. <laughs> and they said, they said, what are you, what are you talking about? And I said, I can print it out of carbon fiber. Uh, it'll have all the internal holes. It's, it's ready to go. You just bolt it on the, on the gear when you get to work. So he took me up on it, and uh, he was blown away. He did not know he could get a functioning part uh, overnight like that. And uh, that, was, that was us having the printer you know, for, for a week at that point. That's a huge win. So again, it's a investment mindset because you didn't have ROI planned out. And if you looked at it as an expense, you never would have bought it because you didn't, wouldn't know how you were going to pay for it. And it might just sit there and never make any money, but you had the conviction and that mindset of abundance. So that is huge. The way I always look at it too, is sometimes you just like in, the stock market, if people are buying stocks, you make investments. And some of them, you don't, you don't win on. You, you lose money. But others, you make money. And typically, you come out ahead. And you have to make a bunch of investments. Some will be good. Some will be bad. But you have to look at it as they are investments. And... Perhaps another way of saying it is a investment is more about the future where an expense is the past. You, you make that purchase and it's, it's gone. So I want to, yeah. And I, sure. I was just going to add to that, that I, I, I think the, the difference uh, in playing the stock market or in, in entrepreneurship or, or small business is, I personally never been very good at playing the stock market, but <laughs> I, I am at, uh, at at entrepreneurship because I can I can change the results, right? I can make the decisions, and so you know, to me, uh, playing the stock market is a little bit like you know betting on horses at the Kentucky Derby. You're kind of mm-hmm. hoping that the trainer and the horse and everything did what it was supposed to do, but in entrepreneurship, I am the trainer, and in some cases, I am the horse, right? So uh, makes a little that, difference. That- that is a great point, Tom, because I remember when I started the company, I had friends and other folks putting out there that I was doing something that was very risky. And in my mind, just as you said, it didn't seem risky because I was controlling the decisions and I could affect the outcome as opposed to the stock market. Or if you're working at a big company and somewhere there's a corporate decision that they no longer need to have your division around and you get laid off. So that was right. a great there's point. With everything. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about splines and gears. And I don't really know anything about them besides the fact that I would tell my shop that we never want to make these because they are tricky parts to make. There's all sorts of nuances. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to produce good parts and you're going to make the customers upset. So maybe you could define, I think 
I know what a gear is, but what is a spline? So that is the age old question. Um, and I, and I can't, uh, I, I should probably have better, uh, better notes in front of me to, for that exact definition. But I will tell you this, the, the, the difference when we talk about splines and gears, um, a, a spline is a, a fixed number of teeth around a diameter. And um, so, some very smart people, uh, you know, a hundred years ago came up with what's called an involute spline. And if you can kind of picture um, a varying number of radiuses making uh, sort of an elliptical arch, Mm-hmm. That's that's what a that's what an involute spline looks like on a on a, on a shadow graph or on a on a blow up uh, sectional view, and the reason that's important is because as two of those mesh against each other, you're constantly making contact on that surface. That long elliptical radius is making surface. So, if you pictured uh, square spline teeth around a shaft. Which, which say that, you know, there are some in industry that use that, and you put that in a, in a car driving down the road, you would hear this clanging and rattling where the, the, the gears are meshing and then not touching, and then they're, they're you know, the, the surface is not always in contact. Sure. And, um, and, and shockingly, people just don't like cars that make that much noise driving down the road. So, um, so, they came up with the involute spline and, and I believe, I, you know, someone could Google, Google this and prove me wrong, but I believe it was a guy by the name of fellows who also came up with the, uh, the gear shaping machine and the, the early gear hobbing machines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think he was out in the Connecticut area. He, uh, he was sort of this, uh, mathematical genius guy that, uh, was, was, was a little Einstein, uh, in his, in his own little building there. And in the rest of the world had no idea what he was talking about, how he figured out all these elliptical arcs and how they mash and how they didn't. So he, he dumbed it down to uh, what I call a McDonald's ordering menu. He literally made a gear chart and uh, any, any dummy, including me in a shop can walk up to a gear chart and say, well, if it's this diameter, this pitch, you know, that's a, that's a 16, four, that's a, you know, 36, two, you just, you can go over to a fellow's, gear shaper and and they have what's called a change gear you pull it out of the box the number the chart told you to grab you plop it in there and it and it cuts that exact gear that exact profile so so he took his genius and he dumbed it down for the rest of the world to use it and uh then guys like me came along and and learned enough about gears that all the rest of the world um just knows they need them and and sort of like you said they just know most of the other shops know enough about them to say, well, I don't know. It seems tricky. And if this elliptical thing's not right, you know, they're going to all be scrap. And when nobody really has these gear checkers because they're expensive. And so we're just not going to make them. So, (laughs) so many of the shops don't make them, but then there's a few shops like me that say it's really not that complicated. Thanks to, thanks to guys like fellows. What types of gears and splines are, they're out there. And I have to say, by the way, that on your website, you have some great pictures of parts and, but there's all sorts of different splines and gears in parts. So 
maybe you could just talk about some of the common ones and any which ones are easier to manufacture, which ones are more difficult. Absolutely. So, um, so an interesting story, and I'll uh, I'll try hard not to slip and say any any company names, so I don't uh, indemnify myself or anybody. But um, be, being in the Detroit area, as I said, there's a lot of gear gear people. Um, there, there's a when you talk about types of gears, there's a uh, AGMA A G M A American Gear Manufacturing Association. Mm-hmm. AGMA has a series of or of a, a, a series of levels for how I guess I'll say accurate or how tightly held a gear is. So we talk about an AGMA 8, an AGMA 9, an AGMA 10. These are normal gears that are in trucks and, and cars around town. Because in, in Metal Might, uh, in the 80s, we made a switch and started doing a lot of aerospace work. The the aerospace world, as we start talking about the uh, the Rolls-Royce, uh, the Bell helicopter, the a little bit more fancier gearboxes than, than the dump trucks and the, and the pickup trucks around town. We get into AGMA 11 and 12. Um, and what this is, if, if again, if someone Googles it, they'll see. When you look at this chart, uh, it, it's basically the report can print out on one 8.5 and, and 11 page, but it's a series of boxes. And you usually have three boxes down the left, three boxes down the right. And you take an average, it's sort of like looking at your blood test results after you get a physical or something. And mm-hmm. they take, uh, in one side, they'll take the, the average of the high and low peaks on your gear, and then you get a number of that. Then another one, they take the surface finish of that gear, whether it's ground or machined or, or shaper cut. Then, so there, there's those six reads, they average all six together for a score, and then that's how you come up with this meets AGMA 11, this meets AGMA 12. The crazy thing about that chart is of all those six areas, if one of them is an AGMA 8 and the other five are AGMA 12 or 13, Mm -hmm. they they call it an AGMA 8 gear. So it's always (laughs) considered the number of the lowest score. I would have been in big trouble in school if, yeah, if my, if my middle school teacher had graded me on that curve, I would have been in a lot of trouble. But uh, that's, how, that's how the gear industry works. So one of the terms I saw was a face spline. What is a, for example, a face spline? So uh, it, it's interesting you ask that. So the, the, the year my, my dad uh, decided to buy the five-axis mill, we had a customer come to us and they said, uh, we want to put a face spline on a large gear. And I said, exactly what you said, what, what the heck are you talking about? And they said, well, essentially we have this gear, uh, and it drives the rear wheels of this large military truck. And mm-hmm. I said, okay. And they said, we want to push a lever forward and engage the front wheels. So therefore shifting it into front wheel drive. And I said, okay, that doesn't sound complicated. I think there are four-wheel drive vehicles out there. And they said, yeah, but we want to do it at 50 miles an hour. We want to be driving this large, you know, 10-ton <laughs> truck through the desert at 50 miles an hour. We want to hit a button and shift into four-wheel drive. And I said, uh, that doesn't work. Everything shatters and breaks. And they said, well, we're trying to change that. So they came up with what's called a face spline. So in the past, what there was was various components joining that rear wheel 
to that the, the set of front wheels, and you sort of had this um, this drive shaft in the middle of the truck uh, uh, down, you know, between the engines always up front, and, and for whatever reason, we always have engines in front, and we drive wheels in back. And I think, you know, Henry Ford started that way, so everyone just thought that was a good idea. But now when you want to engage those front wheels, you have to shift back toward the front and engage the, the drive line in the front. So they designed a proprietary gear uh, on this, uh, it's a spline, sorry, mm-hmm. it's a proprietary face spline. And in order to generate it, it had um, these five axis angles. So if you know what a dovetail cutter is, it had this reverse angles on the teeth, but they right. also pitched 10 degrees down. And it, the whole thing, when you look at it, you can't generate it with a dovetail cutter because you're also going down 10 degrees while maintaining the flat surface at the bottom of the part where the face is. So all of us looked at it and said, well, it can't be machined. And then one of my guys said, actually, if we put it on the five axis with a single point end mill, I can ramp in and he, and he showed me and I said, Oh, so we put all these gears on there and we, and we machined it exactly to their file. And they said, um, great. Now we need you to check it. And I said, um, <laughs> how do we check it? You gave, you gave me a math model and it doesn't, I don't even have dimensions. What are we, what am I verifying? And they said, I don't know. So they said, I'll tell you what, we'll just take the parts and see if they work. And we'll tell you, you know, we'll tell you, we checked it. I said, okay. So we made, you know, 30, 40 of these parts. They took them, worked beautifully. Well, as, as happens in prototype, a year or two goes by and another engineer from the same company comes to me and asked me to quote this new product. And I had this face spline on it. And this guy had this elaborate ball checking call out. He wanted to put a ball bearing between the two teeth. And if your dovetail was right, the ball would fall down to a certain height and you check the height. And so hmm. it's, it's a great way of checking it, but it, it that doesn't really help when you're machining it because you can't have this ball in there checking while you're machining. Right. So we make this part and uh, we check it on the ball and, and the engineer says, well, I need to come to your shop because um, I don't think you made it. You know, we were already done with the part of this one. He said, I don't think you made it right. And I want to come, you know, prove that you made it wrong. And he says, and I'm going to bring my boss. And I said, okay. It's always a fun phone call to get, that they're pretty yeah. sure they're going to prove me wrong and they want to come with their boss. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so they came to the shop and, uh, we have the part sitting on the table and, and we show him what we did. And he looks at it and studies the data, studies how we checked it. And he says, well, yeah, it's, it's right. And he pulls out a mating part and he puts it in and he says, that works right. And he said, that's amazing. He said, um, so here's the little secret. The boss who was with them has, has known metal Mike for, for 20 years and knew, knows me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this other person who ordered it didn't, didn't know me. He was new to the company. He said, well, that's amazing that you were able to make this. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I've talked around the company quite a bit since I've been there. And the, the rumor is that there's only ever been one shop that's made this part properly. And he said, I, I just took a gamble and, and had the quote sent to you and I'm shocked that you, you now have made this part properly as well. And I said, oh. And then his boss starts laughing. And I said, what? And boss said, this is the shop that made the one successful. That So the guy had heard the story from a year prior that we, that we made the part, but uh, didn't know it was me. So then they, they all got kind of a chuckle out of it. And I said, well, I guess, I guess we did it twice, right? So it means we're, we're a little bit better than guessing here. That's a great story. I just want to share with the audience that you have a actually a really good section on your website uh, under the blogs 
which is where I got that question from. So uh, the website for Metal Might, Might is actually M-I-T-E, so metalmite.com. And if you look at the blog from May 22nd, 2018, there's a great picture of five axis on face splines, a great example of a part with a face spline. And for me, the these types of parts, pictures are, are huge to understand what exactly you're doing because the terminology is just not that common in my world. The equipment you have, you, you mentioned before, you have five and six axis. So I'd like to ask, what's the difference between five and six axis? And also in general, what types of equipment do you have in the shop that other shops don't have that are essential for gears and splines? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I have realized as, as I've gotten older that I probably need to get out more because I don't know what other shops do and don't have. Uh, as people ask me that, um, it, you know, I, I think it's been said that uh, we, <laughs> we get used to what, what we do and what we're capable of. And so when people ask us what we're not capable of, we're, it's a hard question to, to answer. Um, the, the difference between five and six axis. So a five axis machine in, in our shop is a five axis milling machine. So the, the mill spins the, the, the mill cutter and uh, it's a, on a bridge. So it has an mm -hmm. X and Y grid on the top. And then, uh, the, the bottom, my, my guys affectionately refer to it as a toilet bowl. Uh, the, there's a circle on the back wall that rotates like a clock forward or backward. And then there's a circle 90 degrees to that, that rotates. So, um, it's a little bit different than the average, uh, machine you see on the market. We specifically bought this machine, uh, at the time Maury Siki bought it from uh, a company called Deco Maho, uh, out in Germany. Uh, since now, uh, they've all merged. Now it's called DMG Mori. So Deco Maho Gildemeister Mori. So the three top German machine makers and the top Japanese maker have all, uh, have a conglomeration now, uh, to one manufacturer. So Deco Maho built this machine, uh, called the MNG, uh, NMG 5000. What's unique about this machine is uh, the other five axis has what's called a trunnion. And if you see that uh, on Google, you'll see it's kind of like shoulders of a, of a football player. You have these two big circles looking at each other, and then it drops down to a plate and another circle in between it. Very common on the Haas machine or um, Makino or some of the other uh, manufacturers. Mm -hmm. That's a very rigid, strong way to machine. So that's why it's so popular. What our issue was, we weren't looking as much for rigidity. We were looking for uh, accessibility because, as I said, we, we get into these very complicated angles and parts. I have a job, a uh, production job, um, which will lead you into your, your other question. As you said, uh, you saw that I'm a prime contractor for the United States government, right. and uh, you wonder what that meant. One of the jobs I do on the five access is a, is a tiny little plastic part that someone else uh, injects plastic molded part. And I have a fixture that one of my guys designed. I put it on this five axis mill 
and it whirls around in all these, these crazy upside down angles. And I drill and tap five holes. It literally takes less than two minutes. And, um, what those plastic things are, they are the slides on our, on our, our soldiers are the Marine Corps and the army use these soldiers with these flip down visors, like a, kind of like a welding mask. Mm-hmm. And these little plastic slides are, are the sort of the, the guide in between the, the visor and the helmet. And so naturally they came to me uh, after they'd injected it. They said, we've injected the whole part minus these five holes and now we can't finish it. And every shop in the world said it's not possible to do because it's all in these weird angles. So we created this fixture. We pop it in the two minute op, we pull it out. So I, I literally take the lowest paid guy in my shop and he comes up with a little clamp and just feeds it in and out every two minutes. And we run a couple thousand every, you know, every couple months for him. And how about the six axis? So then the six axis takes the same concept. And then again, I bought a DMG Mori. Um, it is a five axis head bolted between two lathes. If, if you're familiar with a uh, lathe and there's a lathe, the part sure. spins, the tool holds still and, um, so it's, it's a sub spindle lathe. You have a master chuck on your left and a sub on your right. And then in the middle of them, instead of a turret, uh, you have a milling head. The milling head can also spin, uh, left and right, um, 120 degrees in each direction. So you can actually go below the part of machine, the bottom of it in the chuck. Wow. And then, uh, and then it tilts forward and back. So, it's a little confusing to me again with, with the math, because when I think of access, I think of axes rotating around an ax an axes, you know, yes. but, um, the way they're counting that is you have the head, which goes four axis, and then you have the lathe spindle, which is on an axis. So it's five, but then the lathe spindles, both master and sub are also rotary tables that can go forward and backward. And so they count that as two different axes because they, they go both ways. And then, um, and then because there's a main and a sub, that's where you get five and six. So it, do they technically, they're counting the axes of the part as it travels through the machine, if you picture it that way. Mm-hmm. So we're machining on one side, we're handing off to the other side, we're machining top and bottom. And, you know, so that's where you get your six axes machining in there. So you mentioned the math several times. What CAM product or products do you use to program these machines? Yeah, so that was an interesting um, decision as well. As, as I mentioned, uh, when, when my dad started and he had to pick um, a, a machine maker of choice, he actually didn't pick Morisiki at the beginning. Um, they were sort of the Cadillac or the, the BMW of the market. And um, being a smaller guy, he tried several brands. And at one point in time, he said he had five or six different brand of machines on our floor. And he said it was such a pain when a machine would go down, he couldn't even remember which company to call for the maintenance of it. You know, because sure. um, a, a lot of these brands aren't even around today. But back then it was auto numerics and, you know, Hitachi Siki and, you know, all these different ones. So he finally, when he ran into, um, the importer of Morisiki in Detroit, his name was Tony Iafredi. 
he, he said to Tony, um, Tony, I've got, I've got this issue. I've got these five or six machines and, and they're all there and I can't remember who to call and they break down. And so Tony said, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, Mike, I'll, I'll sell you, I'll take all that crap off your floor <laughs> and, uh, I'll give you three or four Morisikis and you make one phone call and, uh, you know, one of my guys will be there and fix any one of your machines. And, but I'm guessing, you know, we're a little bit like the Maytag repair guy. We're not, we don't get a lot of calls. So my dad said, great, you sold me on it. So we, we did it. Um, so that was a, a major shift in paradigm for us as a small shop to say, let's just stick with one brand. Mm-hmm. But then in, in, the, in the mid to late eighties, we had the same issue bringing in these CAD cam softwares. We had this smart cam and Bobcat and all these guys coming on the market that all had different versions and they all had a little, you know, secret sauce that made them worth, worth looking at. And one of the Morisikis we bought came with uh, Gibbs cam. And uh, there was a guy named Bill Gibbs that uh, actually, you know, created this. And he, he had, he was a former machinist himself. So the way the software worked clicked in the, in the brains of, of our programmers and uh, made sense. So my dad said, you know what, get rid of all the other softwares. We're going to use Morisiki machines and we're going to use Gibbs cam software. And so, you know, I was, 25, 30 years ago, we've stuck with them since. And, and I, I have wire EDM in my shop. I have CNC grinding in my shop. I have the mm-hmm. five and six access and the 3d printer. We literally use Gibbs cam for every one of those things. And I found when I, when I hire people, if they have, uh, um, any type of other CAD experience, CAD cam experience, I send them to like a one or two week training with Gibbs. Mm-hmm. And, and they're up and running just as fast. And then all my guys at my shop become a resource to help train that, that new guy. Um, so for us, I've never been one to say, you know, Morisiki is the best machine on the, pro, uh, on the planet and Gibbs Cam is the best, you know, cam software on the planet. But I've said for my small business, I can't afford to have multiple versions right now. I have to have that be super simple. Totally agree with you, Tom. We had the same philosophy at Rapid. We only had Haas machining centers for the same reason that you don't want, well, I didn't want multiple brands on the floor. It it does complicate it. Not everyone can run every machine. You put one manufacturer out there and it simplifies it. We use Mastercam and they, did a great job for us. Are they the best cam software out there? It depends how you look at it. They, they, just like Gibbs cam, you, you, you pick one and if it, if it's get you, get you there, it may, may not be the most efficient in all instances, but if it does everything for you, then having one makes in my mind, a big difference in how you are able to be more nimble as a shop. So that's a great point. What other, you mentioned CNC grinding, uh, you mentioned the fellows machines before. What are those, do you still use the fellows? Is that still part of gear and spine making in part? Yeah, so the um, fellows, Shaper cutter. I actually sold that 
last year. Um, another interesting story. I was, I was helping a customer out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. They make mining uh, machines, little trucks that drive down in the mines, mm-hmm. and uh, these little spline shafts wear out all the time. So he sent me a similar thing, went, went to several shops all around. I guess that's a long way from Albuquerque to Detroit, but he, he went around, couldn't find a shop that could make the spline. I said, oh, we can do that. So we made it. He said, how'd you do it? I said, oh, let me send you some pictures. I showed him everything that we did on this, on this fellow uh, shaper thing. And so he said, can I buy the machine from you? <laughs> and I said, well, why don't you just order the parts for me? And he said, well, I got these other projects. And he was a great guy, sort of reminded me of my dad. He was 80 and he had started his, this shop. And, and um, so anyway, I just said, I said, well, yeah, I mean, I said, you can buy these things off eBay. And he goes, no, I want yours. And I want it set up for my job and I want it to to come out here. So I just said, fine, you know, it's, you know, 11 grand. And so he gave me 11 grand and, you know, shipped it to Albuquerque. So I don't have it anymore. Um, Today, how we generate spines, we actually, uh, another interesting term for, for your, uh, for the Google listeners here, um, polygonal machining. Um, So Mr. Mr. Fellows, um, and, and Barbara Coleman and these guys that made the hobbing machine, um, again, can if you ever see a hobbing machine, it's, it's an amazing video. If you can, if you can Google or YouTube that the, the one cutter is spinning at, a, at an RPM, let's just say, you know, a hundred RPM, your part is spinning, uh, in a, on a 90 degree, like in a lathe chuck at mm-hmm. say a hundred RPM. This thing feeds in and out, forward and back, uh, with everything rotating. The cutters, the parts, everything is rotating. And the splines are straight as can be, like straight. There's no nothing curved on that part. And it, it, it's just amazing when you look at it, like how, how that, well, the timing of that has to be perfect. You can't, right. you can't mess that up at all. So uh, those machines up until just a few years ago were the only ones on the market that could do that. The CNC world couldn't get the math right. And even if the math was right, they couldn't get the accuracy uh, to make those two counter-rotating things rotate together. But now they've come out with polygonal machining, and a couple of the higher-end machines have this option. And uh, if, you, if you see that on YouTube, what they'll, they have a fly cutter like on a mill they have a lathe chuck spinning at like a thousand RPM and he feeds it in and he cuts the Eiffel tower. I mean, he, he literally cuts a shape that is, is like the Eiffel tower with square corners. Wow. And, and it blows your mind. You just say that that's not possible, you know? And so taking that concept, we, we bought uh, live uh, tooling on our, on our uh, Morisiki NLs is a live tool lathe where you can have milling and turning. We bought hobbing live tool inserts, and that turned out to, to be a huge payoff, again, is, is your concept of, of uh, you know, why we buy something. It was like a $12,000 option, and I said, that you know, that's just cool. We got to have that. So we bought it, didn't have a job for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a month or so later, customer came and said, hey, we're trying to take the F-150 pickup truck and we're trying to turn it, the future ones into all-wheel drive instead of four-wheel drive. So we, don't, we no longer want the push button or the clunk. We want to be able to just seamlessly go. And the, the high-end Infinities and Acuras and all that do this. So they want the F-150 to do that. So they said, unfortunately, this one gear 
the spline has to go in and then taper out on a five, 10 degree angle and then get larger. And the entire spline tooth has to go on that angle. And all the gear guys said that you can't do that. These, these Barbara Coleman and these fellows, they just go in and go out. You can't, you can't go on angles. And I said, Oh, well, a lathe can do whatever we tell it to do. So we, so we programmed it. We literally ended up running, uh, I think the first 10,000 parts for production uh, as they proved this product out, but we just fed in and then we tapered out and got larger. Um, it was only possible through polygonal machining on the, on that Mori lathe. That's a great story of innovation because technology gets invented, the polygonal machining, the ability to put the tooling into your existing equipment, and now you are creating parts, capabilities that didn't exist before. Yeah, and that's really what we're seeing, Jay. When you when you ask why would I buy the 3D printer, um, we're seeing for the for the first time in a long time there there was kind of the technology um, the bubble had burst. There just really wasn't a lot of new anything on the market. I mean, like mm-hmm. I said, Henry Ford had gears in in 1908, and uh, we're, we're using some of the same technology on the on the 2018 Grand Cherokee, and the <laughs> you know there, there's just not a lot of differences. But when I bought the 3D printer this summer, uh, my son interned with me, and he's, he's 19. He's a sophomore at the University of Michigan, and uh, he is not an engineer. He's, he's, a, he's a business guy. He actually went there for actuarial science. He's a numbers guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so he came to work with me, and he had an iPad, and I guess uh, that's how these millennials do it, right? They got the iPad right. and the red jeans and the, you know, whatever. But they... So he comes and he said, I said, Hey, I need you to just take the course on running this 3d printer. And he said, dad, I'm not an engineer. You know, my roommates are engineers, but I'm not. And I said, no, just, just do it and see what you can learn. In in one week, actually, I think it was three days training. He was sitting across the dinner table from me with his iPad. He had downloaded some free cam software and he goes, dad, look. And he, he designed uh, a Christmas tree with his finger <laughs> and he turned it into 3d and then he printed it the next day at the shop and then he was holding the steel version of what he drew at the dinner table. And, um, he said to me, he said, dad, I'm going to go back to school in the fall. And my engineer friend spent all summer working at Starbucks and they learned how to make coffee. And I just made a part on an iPad and printed it. And I said, that's, that's the future right there. That's amazing. That's a great segue, Tom. The, your son now is, well, he didn't machine it, but let's technically call him the fourth generation machinist in the family. And perhaps you could just give us a little bit of the, the history. The, you know, your, your father started the shop in 1968, but it sounds like your grandfather was in the machining business before that. And maybe you could just give us a little history of Metal Might. Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll try to condense it, but I think, uh, I think a lot of it's on the, on the website as you alluded to, but my grandfather, uh, was a school teacher in Pennsylvania. Um, in 1940, uh, a war was, uh, was breaking out and, uh, the whole world was involved in it and his brothers moved to Detroit and, and called him and said, Hey, there's, there's a lot of work here, a lot of things to be done. So my grandfather went, uh, 
<clears throat> and, and worked for a company uh, that ended up doing pretty well uh, called Textron. Mm-hmm. And he ended up having some, some ownership stocks in it during the war. And in, uh, in 1945, 46, he took the buyout and he started a company called Ryan Industries. It was on Ryan Road in Detroit on, on Ryan and Five Mile. And um, he became a prime contractor, which, you know, you, you talked about it, uh, as we are as well. Mm-hmm which just means you're authorized to work for the United States government. You get what's called a cage code and you can bid on, on contracts or they can come to you direct and, and pay you to make something. And, um, so he was, he was making and designing, uh, Gatlin guns and things that held cameras on the bottoms of airplanes and just all sorts of military things. Um, he got into gears, uh, quite a bit of gears. Uh, he, he, ended up selling, uh, Ryan. I, I can't remember the whole story, but I think Textron bought out Ryan industries as well. So they, they just kept kind of chasing him around there. And, um, he again took the buyout money and started a, another company called manor industries where, uh, he focused on the gears. And so when my dad was growing up in, in Detroit, uh, in the, in the late fifties, early sixties, his job was to go around to shops that had broken gears from these manual machines like this fellows that we talked about and this Barbara Coleman. Mm-hmm. And th- they would literally run the machine until the gears shattered. I mean, into, into just tons of pieces. My dad would, would uh, reassemble it like a jigsaw puzzle on the floor of that shop while he was there and take a pad of paper and he would draw the gear, the diameter and the pitch and the, te- the gear teeth. And he, that's how he learned about gears. And then he would take it back and, and my grandfather's shop would make these gears. There's a gear uh, called a herringbone gear, which has two 45 degree angle bevel gears. And in the middle, there's a, there's a gap. And um, regular gear cutters can't cut those because you get two 45s and they kind of come to an end. You can't do it. My grandfather was the first one in Detroit to have a, a herringbone gear cutter. Um, and and oddly enough, I just heard the story the other day, it's still being used, uh, today by a shop, uh, just outside Detroit and Warren. And, uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. To think about something, uh, 70, 80 years old, still still being a viable product. Um, so in the sixties, my dad, uh, moved out of Detroit to, to Rochester. Um, and he started his own shop in the basement as, as we talked about it. So just one man and, he wanted to do the CNC route. My grandfather was already getting uh, older at that time. He didn't think there was a future in the CNC, but he supported my, my dad and his efforts. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where um, my dad went through, uh, as we talked about, made it almost 50 years. Uh, you know, he just made it 45 and, and, and the cancer took him. And I joined him, you know, 25 years ago and, and we're, we're carrying the baton a little bit further. So that's, that's sort of the three generation shift and, and how we've stayed in that, uh, in that loop. When did you buy the business from your father? So 2009, um, we had, uh, it was interesting. I, my, I'm the youngest of five, uh, I guess I should add. So mm-hmm. my two older brothers, my two sisters got married and moved out of town. My two older brothers were interested, uh, but they, uh, more, more true to following my dad's roots, they went out and started their own shops and, uh, and ended up, uh, they're still in industry, but they've closed their shops since. Mm-hmm. So I was the baby. I was never supposed to uh, buy my dad's business, but 
uh, when, when my oldest brother had, had left my dad, I had just graduated college. So that's the kind of the gap between us. And, um, my degree is in aviation. I was, uh, I was an AMP mechanic and a pilot. And, um, so I, I was, I said to my dad, I'm going to go work for, you know, American airlines and, and fix planes and fly planes and do that. And, and he said, you know, wait a minute, you know, all, all my other sons left. And, uh, you know, he was kind of looking at his succession plan and <laughs> figuring that, uh, the, the last son can't leave here. So <laughs> my wife and I had just gotten married and, uh, and he said, don't, don't you want to start a family? And I said, yeah, I think that's, you know, part of the plan after, after you get married. And he goes, well, let's, uh, let's talk about, he said, let me teach you everything I know in 10 years, you, you buy me out and I, and I'm out. And I said, Oh, okay. So I went back to my wife and I said, Hey, what do you think about this? He wants to teach me everything he knows in 10 years. And then and he's out. So, uh, that was, that was, uh, 1999 that that conversation mm-hmm. happened. And then in 2009, I came to him and said, Hey, guess what? It's been 10 years. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, yeah, you're right. And he said, uh, he said, I have no idea how to buy and sell a company. Can you, uh, can you figure that part out? And I said, sure can. So hired a great group of, uh, accountants and lawyers and they appraised it and we wrote the contract up and, uh, we, uh, we bought him out over a 10 year buy sell plan. So it sounds like that was a pretty smooth process. Were there any points of contention along the way? For sure. I think I, you know, as typical, we talked about how we're wired as, as entrepreneurs and, and as small business owners. Um, he, you know, wanted to honor his plan. And mm-hmm. so he did, but a few years into it, he definitely started to, you know, if, if we didn't have the contracts in place and we hadn't signed on it, I think he probably would have reneged just because, you, you, you know, what's the saying you can take the, you know, the boy out of Texas, but you can't take right. Texas out of the boy. So, so I think my dad was always an entrepreneur at heart. And so that sounds like it. an important point. You, when you joined the company, you signed a contract or you had a piece of paper that you both agreed to that you would buy the business in 10 years. It wasn't just verbal. So no, when I, when I joined in 99, we didn't have that. And, um, every, person I've taken to lunch and talked to since then, I've, I've encouraged them to, uh, to get that. So he, uh, because my dad was a man of his word, 10 years later, we did the contract. Uh, I, you know, I, that's when I hired the company to appraise and, and he signed and we did the 10 year buy sell. Um, but yeah, there, there was definitely points along the way where I could see my dad would, have very much wanted me to, you know, just go start my own, you know, start from scratch. And he wanted to keep his, his baby till the end. So, um, as it was, we started in 09. Um, and it was, it was very unfortunate. Cancer hit my dad hard in uh, 2011. And, um, I ended up missing a lot of, of work. Thankfully I have a great team, uh, at the, at the company that was able to run it, but he and I spent two years going out to the Mayo clinic in Minnesota and, and doing everything we could to, to try to, you know, beat the cancer, but in 2013, it finally took them. Um, so it was very, very good at that in 2009, we, we both had the, the, the good sense and the decency to, to sign the contract and, and go that way. So it sounds like the first step was to find 
both legal and accounting help. How did you source those folks? What were the considerations when, or how did you, maybe even step back, how did you know that that was the right approach that you had to get a legal and accounting team, CPAs, and then once you made that determination, how did you find those folks? Yeah, that was a, that was definitely an interesting process. Um, the whole world of mergers and acquisitions had never um, never really crossed my dad and I's path. Obviously, my my grandfather had some experience, uh, you know, getting bought out a couple times, but but we did not, especially within family. I ended up just asking, um, you know, the, the groups of guys uh, in the area uh, that that I was friends with. Um, I've been, I've been grateful to find a network, um, uh, of, of entrepreneurs and people that, uh, just by chance, uh, I, I know that, I think we had some conversation about, uh, the, the entrepreneur group, uh, nationwide that you can join, but I, I was able to just, uh, there was a couple dozen people I knew that owned their own businesses and, and my insurance guys and other people. And so I, you know, would just take these guys to lunch and I'd ask them, you know, questions. There's a company in the Detroit area called UHY, some, uh, some CPAs and advisors. And, uh, some people said, just, just call UHY. They'll do a, a, a company valuation and, uh, and give you everything, you know, from a legal standpoint and then get an attorney to, uh, to, to do the documentation. And, and because it's a, you know, a peaceful transition, uh, from father to son, there's, there's no, you know, there's not gonna be a lot of issue there. So at the end of the day, I mean, I think it costs us between, uh, 10 and $20,000, mm-hmm. um, to, to do it because it, it was peaceful. We, we had a great attorney, um, uh, a small town attorney that, uh, that does all of our legal work that had also had some experience with mergers and acquisitions he came to my dad and me together and said, listen, because there's five kids in the family and other people involved, he said, I, I want to do a couple things that might seem, you know, again, abnormal, but I, I, it's very important that we do them. And I said, all right, well, let me know. He said, we're going to do a valuation. And for, for the sake of numbers, let's say, it, you know, the company's worth a hundred thousand dollars. He mm-hmm. said, we're going to value the company at a hundred thousand dollars. And then, and then Tom, you're going to sign a contract to pay 110,000. And I said, okay, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Why, why would I pay why would I pay more than what we just appraised it for? And he said, as an attorney, I have done. So he said, once the, 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 the founder dies, somebody, some, some ex-wife or some, somebody somewhere rises up and challenges the sale and uh it's the easiest case for me to win if i pull out the documentation and say it was valued at this and he paid more and he mm-hmm. and here's the documentation that he paid over time so and so my dad and i both said oh that, that just makes sense we didn't foresee anybody challenging we said it just makes sense so right. we got everything valuated we, we we signed the deal and we we paid more than it was worth <laughs> you the terms you mentioned 10 years was that suggested by the CPAs or was that, how was that arrived at? Yeah, I believe uh, it was, it was either the CPA or the attorney that suggested that number. Um, and essentially we, we built a few things in again, have, having guys that, 
that knew uh, this process. Obviously, we didn't know my dad was going to get cancer two years later and then and then be dead, you know, four years later. Um, but in in that, the attorney knew these things happened. So a couple of things he built in, he built in a 10 year term and then he built in an option that if, if my father had died, uh, before the 10 years was up, obviously my mother is still alive, but he said if, and then he had continued if mother and father died in a car accident or a plane crash, whatever. Um, then I had a, like a 36 month option that nobody could challenge to, to buy the rest of the company. Okay. And then, um, the way we did it at the time, the company was a, uh, a C corp and we've now transitioned it to an S corp, but a C corp has a stock. And so the way we did the buy sell over 10 years was I bought stock. Okay. And, um, so the attorney just said to me the day we signed, he said, now I, I had to essentially cashed out my 401k and gave the a deposit as much as I could. But even that was, I don't remember the numbers, maybe, maybe 15% owner of the company at that day, the attorney said, your job is to get above 51% uh, as fast as you can. Gotcha. And I said, why? And he said, I, I need you to be a majority owner uh, uh-huh. as fast as he, and at this point now he's representing me <laughs> right. as well. But he said, I need you to get above 51%. He said, in case anything happens and sure enough, you know, my dad got sick. So, uh, we, we very quickly got to, I believe, you know, 85 or 90%. Um, and then the building that the, the company's in, my mother and father owned separately. I also mm-hmm. bought that off them on the same day uh, on a land contract that was 10 years. And, um, and since uh, then, I, I, again, good advice from the CPA, we had to uh, pay that off sooner so that it would count as actual assets on my personal financial statement. So, yeah, I think, you know, learning how to machine and how to solve problems in manufacturing was, was one part of it. The entire merger acquisition uh, process was, uh, I guess that'd be the MBA uh, that I got uh, in the the second uh, half of my career. If you could do it over again, is there anything in the process that you would change? You know, um, of course, uh, I think if, if somebody said no, they're, they're lying, uh, or not paying attention or maybe both. Um, but they, uh, I think the biggest thing standing here today that I wished I'd done different, uh, is, is paid more attention to the debt and, and kept the uh, debt to equity ratio, uh, in a better place. I think my, uh, and that's what I was alluding to earlier where I said, you know, the ambition and the, the entrepreneurial spirit and the desire mm-hmm. to, to buy without calculating ROI and this and that is, is great. You need to have balance. And um, we talked a little bit about, uh, about the book Traction uh, and yes. Gino Wickman. Yes. In the last five years of my life, uh, I, I, I read this book Traction and I just loved it. I, I found, I found the part that I was missing in the business. Um, I, I don't have an integrator. <laughs> I need, I need, you know, like, I guess in all the comparisons, I, I would be, you know, Walt Disney or, or one of these guys that's, you know, the innovator outside, mm-hmm. let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. 
um, Walt Disney would have gone bankrupt. I think he did go bankrupt, you know, several times if it wasn't for his brother, Roy, who almost right. nobody knows Roy Disney, right. but, uh, but Roy, Roy's the integrator, right? Roy was the one that was doing the ROI calculation and then bringing Walt back down to, to earth and, and getting some of the business deals set up. Do you have an integrator and, now? Um, so I, I, I did, um, uh, unfortunately past tense, <laughs> Uh, I, I was a colleague of mine that uh, he was a customer for 14 years at two different companies, one aerospace and one medical. And uh, he came available about a year ago. And um, he actually is, uh, is certified. Uh, so in the early days of traction, uh, Gino was also working with Chris Elias, who's the, the grandson of the Elias brothers uh, from the big boy restaurants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Chris Elias uh, has a group in Detroit called Nexecute and uh, very similar uh, conversation, very similar layout where uh, you, you have the, the, the innovator and the integrator. Then you have the, you know, the, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. You mm-hmm. set your rocks. You have your, your, your regular rhythm of meetings. Um, so very similar as, as I've read both, uh, they're the same. Um, my, my guy was certified in the Nexecute, uh, world and he's a, he's an integrator for other companies. Uh, he's a consultant. So he came on board with me. Um, we, you know, just sharing some numbers out, out loud here. We had done about 5 million in annual revenue, uh, for a couple of years in a row at metal Might. last year, we, we cranked it up, uh, and, and beat that. We, it was our 50th year. We were very excited to have our our uh, highest revenue month, highest revenue quarter, highest margin. Um, so we just were so excited. I said, we are going, you know, traction 100%, let's incorporate it. Um, and then I don't know what's been going on in the Detroit area, but the last nine months, we, we've been down about 30% from, from where we were even last year. Hmm. So when I, when I put together the, the forecast and the calculations of bringing on uh, the integrator. We also hired some leadership on the shop floor. We, we brought in some other people. Uh, suddenly, I just couldn't afford it. Also, being the typical integrator that he is, he came to me uh, three or four months ago and said, "Hey, I don't know if you're looking at the numbers, but we we can't both stay, and uh, I think the bank is going to require you to stay. So, I think I'm going to have to step out." So, he uh, he stepped out with with grace, and I, you know, obviously, we still talk regularly. Mm-hmm. And, um, so now I'm just sort of, I'm sort of stuck looking at, you know, part of that, that conversation where you ask, what would I do different? That debt to equity ratio, if I had been paying a little bit more attention to that, I think that this, I wouldn't have gotten caught off guard with not having the equity to keep, you know, the team that I wanted there. Some of the other issue, and, and, and I know I've, uh, as I've listened to some of your previous podcasts, it, it seems like it's a common thread the succession plan and the transition of a shop. Um, I have a great, great set of employees and over half of them uh, have had, you know, 20 plus years working for my dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they are as loyal as can be uh, to my dad and to, you know, the company, uh, the company that they hired into. Mm-hmm. And so I think when the, when the son, um, a lot of people in this area refer to them as SOBs, you know, sons of bosses. 
when, uh, when the FOB comes in <laughs> and, uh, and has these different ideas and starts, you know, talking about things like traction and putting big posters of a tire, you know, around the shop, I think yeah. they, they don't catch the excitement as much as, uh, as I did. And so I think we, we sort of caught a clash of the new and the old guard. Um, and so I had, I had friends outside my business saying, Oh, you just have to eliminate every one of those people that, uh, that don't, you know, want to do it. And I, and I'm like, Holy cow, that's, you know, they're, they're great guys. I mean, a lot of them mentored me as a kid. (laughs) So so I'm caught in this world of like, what do I do when they don't want to transition? Right. It's, and that's part of being a leader is figuring out how to bring your team along. Oh. For sure. For sure. We have, uh, you know, nine, nine guys in the next five years that'll be retiring due to age. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so again, as we, as we started our, our regular rhythms of meeting and we, we talked about our rocks, succession planning has has been near the, near the top of almost every conversation. And, um, it's this crazy, I mean, I was sitting in a room two months ago with, with a group of guys, running multi-billion dollar companies and um you know people ask how i get invited to these meetings i said i, I don't know maybe i wasn't i just was in the wrong room or something but but I, I was in this room and these guys literally said um are the rest of you having an issue uh hiring <laughs> and uh and i said what do you mean and they said well and then they're trying to be very politically correct but essentially i said i just blurted out i said you mean you can't keep millennials at your company and they all they all laugh and said yeah that's that's the issue we we hire these kids and like four months later they moved to bermuda or something i just i don't know what's going on and like <laughs> we can't get a read on this and i said yeah i said you know obviously i'm a lot smaller than you guys but but i i, I had that i hired two guys we were talking about these five and six axis machines they they got it you know they they had the gift as my, my dad would refer to it as the gift they they got it they had the gift i, I got them trained on the cad they were making complex parts for, for helicopters and, and self-guided missiles and all the cool stuff we get to do. And, and then, uh, the, the one kid, you know, was 20, 24 years old. He came to me and he said, Hey, um, I just wanted to let you know, I'm, I'm moving to Colorado on Friday. And I said, Oh, okay. I said, was there a, uh, was there an issue on the floor that I don't know about? And he goes, no, because I love everybody here. And I go, oh, okay. I said, did you meet a girl? Or, I mean, was there, was there somebody in Colorado? He said, I don't know. I've never been to Colorado. <laughs> I said, I said, okay, do, uh, do, you have a, do you have a job there? Do you have, like, an uncle that's going to hire you? Or what's going on? He goes, no. He said, I'm packing up my truck, and I'm driving to Colorado. And I just, you know, I heard they have snow on the top of those mountains, and it just sounded cool. And, and I, I literally was like, I thought I was getting punked or, or I was part of some sort of gag. I said, I said, well, I mean, some people just call that a vacation. I mean, just go for two weeks and snowboard and then just come back. I mean, what are you talking about? And he said, no, I, I'm dead serious. I, I, you know, I got this cool idea. I'm moving to Colorado Friday. So he literally left. And then, and then his, his buddy, that same age as him hired in at the same time, he ran the five axis mill I thought, well, at least, you know, he had just gotten married and his wife was pregnant. And I thought, okay, well, at least I'm safe here. Like this guy can't move to Colorado. He's going to have a baby. He's got a reason to stay at his job. No lie. He came to me three weeks later 
And he goes, uh, Hey, I just had a realization. And I said, what? I, I can't even imagine what realization you had today. And he said, my wife is, is pregnant. And in nine months, she's going to have a baby. And I said, I, I could have told you that I had that talk with my kids, you know? And he goes, no, no, no. <laughs> he said, I realized, he said, I realized that my, my mother lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and that's 10 hours away. And I said, you, you just now realize that your mother lives in Chattanooga? And he goes, no, I put the two together. I'm going to have a baby and my mom's in Chattanooga. My, my baby's not going to know her grandma. He goes, I'm, I'm moving next Friday to Chattanooga. <laughs> and I said, you're, you're kidding, right? And he goes, no, he goes, I, I have to be, you know, I have to have this baby down there. I have to have it near grandma. So he, he moved literally three weeks later. So I, I just sit back and I, you know, I tell that story to this group of, of guys who are a million company. I said, guys, your guess is as good as mine. I, I don't think there's any test we can give these guys. I don't think there's any HR department that can, <laughs> that can help right. us. It has nothing to do with, with wage or benefit or vacation. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, I guess in Detroit, we need snow-capped mountains and, and grandma to both be here because that's the only way I'm going to keep uh, keep these guys. So you need to start figuring out how to hire the grandmothers so that the kids will follow. <laughs> well, if you saw half the guys in my shop, uh, I think their wives are the grandmothers. So that's, uh, that's sort of the dichotomy of what we have. But, but no, I say that because in, as you're familiar with traction and, we, and you and I've had that talk, uh, the whole concept is looking at a business in sort of this 360 degree, you know, maybe and then some, you know, mm -hmm. the four dimensions of a business. And so as we're constantly looking at, you know, we, we do the, the, the SWOT analysis, you know, what's our, our strengths, our weaknesses, our opportunities, our threats, and, and we look at everything, we, succession planning both in ownership as well as, as, as direct and indirect labor uh, is at the top of everybody's conversation. I mean, obviously, it's at the top of these boardrooms at these multi-billion dollar companies as well as, as my little company. And I, I don't have an answer for it. I know um, it's just an ongoing, uh, one of my best guys worked until he was 74, finally mm -hmm. retired this summer. I got that extra, you know, maybe extra nine, 10 years uh, out of him, but, but he's one of the guys that just loved doing it. He just came in every day cause he just, you know, he loved the, the shop. Um, but obviously that, you know, that plan, I can't plan on everybody working to 74, you know? Right. So for the audience referencing EOS, EOS stands for entrepreneurial operating system. Traction is the more formal name for it. And what, Tom is referring to as a standard way of running your shop and the way I equate it, we used a, a similar system, different but similar at Rapid, is that it takes all the information that's in Tom's head or my head as an owner and starts to push it out to the team so that you get the team more involved and one of the big mechanisms is that it facilitates communication because when I was an owner, I realized you think everybody knows what you're thinking about on the, your, both your, your managers as well as the people on the floor, but they don't. You really have to get it out of your head, put it on paper, share it with people, have, have honest debates about different things. And what happens is that your team does get more invested 
and they become your partner. And for myself, and it sounds like for you, Tom, you you start to really move forward because it's a whole bunch of people rowing now and, and, and you're rowing in the same direction. So EOS is a fantastic tool to help bring the entrepreneur from the entrepreneur to team and, and to get that communication in place. For sure. I, I mean, we've, we've benefited on the small scale and I, and I've, you know, seen the examples of the, of the large scale companies that, that have gained from it too. And I think the, the single biggest takeaway I got from it, um, and, and there's a series of, of books that, that complement the whole process, uh, good to great with Jim Collins and, and many of the, the other stuff, um, that Rockefeller habits, um, the, the biggest thing I've taken away from it is learning my blind spots, my weaknesses. So I was wired and, and built a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's not right or wrong. It's just, it's just a way. And there are people that uh, can compliment me and, and, and we get a synergy from it where instead of, you know, the, the, the example they talk about, one of the books is the, uh, the plow horses, uh, the, the, right, the right. Clydesdale, uh, one horse pulls 4,000 pounds and you put two horses together, they pull 21,000 pounds. And so you, you, you do the math and you say, well, wait a minute, if one pulls four, doesn't two pull eight? And no, the two horses together have a synergy, some sort of symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. where they've literally got almost seven, you know, six, six times the amount of pull strength. So that's what I've seen. Uh, and, and like I said, I, I hope I get a chance to circle back and, and, and put that team together. But I've seen where, um, my innovation and my leadership can go to a certain point and just having a few of those key players around me can get us, you know, to, to a better point. Well, I think this is a great place to wrap it up. We've covered a lot of ground today and I really appreciate Tom, you opening up and sharing some of the things that occurred during the transition of the business ownership from your father to yourself. I'm sure there's many listeners out there who've lived through the same experience and it's helpful for them to know that they are not alone with those challenges of a generational transfer. And for those listeners who may be planning for a succession on both sides, Perhaps this conversation will help make it a smoother transition for them. For myself, I definitely now have a better understanding of gears and splines. And I will say it again, kids, don't try this at home unless you have adult supervision. Gears and splines are not for beginners. So (laughs) anything else, Tom, you would like to add? No, I I just want to say thanks uh, so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I I really enjoy the show, so I'll I'll continue listening as well. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. And we mentioned Metal Might's website before, but how else can they reach you? Or is the website the best way? You know, uh, yeah, the website uh, is is an excellent way. We've just spent uh, this year redoing it. Uh, We we have our 
our quick uh, 48-hour uh, promise on the on the quotes request. All right, Tom. Media, uh, Facebook, Instagram. If you just type in Metal Might, uh, you'll find us there. LinkedIn uh, and Google as well. And that's M-E-T-A-L-M-I-T-E. If you need gears and splines, Tom's your guy. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Job Shop Show. Until next time, keep those spindles spinning. Thanks.